today we're focusing on, on the second half of John chapter 8, and I am super excited for this text, uh, because growing up, the Gospel of John was my favorite gospel. And uh, if you've never read the Bible, if you've never read the Gospel of John, I highly recommend it. Um, there's, there's just something about this gospel that growing up, I couldn't quite pinpoint, but I was so drawn to it. Like the other gospels just felt so like, uh, like bleh to me. Like it, was, it felt so dry, like cookie cutter. Um, but like the gospel of John, it felt like it ran at a different pace. And just to brag about just the awesomeness of, of, of this gospel, like to start off, it starts off with like this epic Beautiful poem talking about how in the beginning there was a word, the word was God, there was a word, and the word was God, and the word was with God, and the word became flesh. And that embodies like the idea of obviously Genesis and creation and all that stuff, but it also carries like the idea of like Greek um, ideology and philosophy, the, the word logos, right? Word, uh, it's, it's, the, it's the idea of logic and truth, right? So the truth became flesh. I mean, that's a significant thought. So it starts off with that, and of course, we get passages like. John 3, 16, where God, you know, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. But 17 also is like pretty significant, right? God did not send his son to condemn the world, but to save it. That's like a, such a profound theological understanding, right? Um, so many good ones. John chapter 13, 34, 35. This has been like my wife, my wife and I, our wedding verse. It was, it's that they will know that you are my disciples by your love for one another. In other words, the way we love one another is, a, is, a, is witness, is witness of how we are people that belong to God. And that we still carry that verse with us 13 years into our marriage. Um, John chapter 17 was so formative for me in college. The idea that Jesus, the Son of God, prays for me. He has thoughts and opinions about me. He has desires for me. And that just like blew my mind. And just the how, how much of a relational God he is. Oh gosh, there's just so many. Last one, um, the epilogue. The, that shaped how I view ministry. Of like, it's, it's a restored being in Peter, right? Peter denied God, you know, several times, a few times. And then at the end, he, he restores him and says, hey, do you love me? He says, if so, feed my sheep, right? It's, it's, it's the, the, the root of ministry is rooted in a loving relationship with Jesus. So John, the gospel of John has been so foundational to me um, in, in my upbringing and in church and being a pastor's kid and all that stuff. But, but in recent years, I, um, I have found myself being frustrated with the gospel of John, uh, particularly, like, particularly because, as the title of our series suggests, um, Jesus is super untamed. I'm like, dude, Jesus, what's wrong with you, man? And like, because like, we, we are so used to the Jesus of like, uh, you know, like, all oh, who are weary and thirsty, come and I'll give you rest. Heavy late, I'll give you rest. Oh, let the little children come. I will eat with like sinners and tax collectors. And that he definitely did say that. And he def that's definitely true. He did all those things. But like, but yeah, we get passages like the one that we're about to read and the one that we read last week and the one we're also going to read next week where Jesus is like, Yo, what's your problem? Like you're saying stuff that are like that are literally pushing people away. He comes across brash and, and agitated. And when you read the Gospel of John in rhythm, you begin to see that this is a pattern. This is an established pattern of Jesus. Like from chapters 2 to 12, 
pretty much like, so, so 2 to 12, that's like half of the Gospel of John, right? So, you know, the beginning, like John says all this wonderful stuff, he's the Word, and the Word became flesh, and all that. And right after that, it's like, he, he, he turns water into wine, and he just takes off a whole bunch of people. And he does another miracle, and he takes off a whole bunch of people. And then he, he, teaches, he does like this really difficult teaching, and he sends a bunch of people off. And we see this pattern over and over again until Lazarus, and Lazarus is like the final straw. And after that happens, people are like, oh, we got to kill this dude. People, they go from like, oh, like, I really like this guy too. This guy's got to die. Complete difference in perspective in Jesus. And the way, like, so I found myself being frustrated because, like, in John chapter 20, when, when he kind of wraps up the main kind of narrative of Jesus, he says that these are written so that you may believe. You may believe. So, author John, like you seem very like this seems very counterproductive to your ultimate goal. Why would you write Jesus in this way? If you're trying to get people to believe, I, I wouldn't write Jesus in this way. I, I like the fluff Jesus. I like nice Jesus, buddy Jesus. If you've seen um, that movie in like the late nineties, um, so this text is an example of that, where we we come in tension. Yes, exactly. Yeah. That would this Jesus. Um, so this text is an example of Jesus doing something, and people are so offended. And it starts off, interestingly, it starts off with a bunch of believers. It starts off with a bunch of believers. And by the end of chapter 8, they're not only ready to leave him, but they are ready to kill him. It goes from, oh, he's kind of dope, to, oh, he's got to die. So what's happening here? So... We're going to read this first part of the last half of chapter 8 together. And we're going to find out kind of what's happening here. So as we read it, we're going to read it together. I'll, I'll read it out loud for us. And as we do that, um, I ask you to like, pay attention to Jesus' tone. See what he's like, sounding like. Um, and as we kind of pay attention to his tone, try to see if there are any kind of like themes that get brought up. Like what, what, are the, what, what are they talking about here? What are the questions that they're bringing up? And I'm giving you a heads up because right after we read it, we'll, we'll kind of share this together out loud together. And, or for folks online, um, Joel is back there. He's manning the Facebooks. Uh, so if you have, actually, you might be at an advantage because you might be able to like pull it up on another screen, you know, and just kind of like go off. Any, anyways, uh, feel free to chime in and then Joel uh, will let us know. Um, but we'll read this um, 31 to 47 together. And then let's pay attention to tone and let's see what kind of themes are being brought up here. So 31. To the Jews who had believed him, so these are believers, right? Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you're really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Ah, that's such a tweetable verse. Then they answered him, we are Abram's descendants and have never been slaves of anyone. Mm. How can you say that we shall be set free? Jesus replied, very truly I tell you, anyone who, is, who sins is a slave to sin. Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Now I know that you are Abram's descendants, yet you are looking for a way to kill me because you have no room for my word. And that is a direct throwback to chapter one. I'm telling you, what I have seen in the Father's presence, and you are doing what you have heard from your father. Uh, Abraham is our father, they answered. 
if you are Abram's children, said Jesus, then you would do what Abram did. As it is, you are looking for a way to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. Abram did not do such things. You are doing the works of your own father. We're not Ill illegitimate children, they protested. The only father we have is God himself. 42, Jesus said to them, if you, or if God were your father, you would love me, for I have come from God. I have not come on my own. God sent me. Why is my language, again, a throwback to chapter 1, why is my language not clear to you? Because you are, you are unable to hear what I say. You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he's a liar and the father of lies. Yet, because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Can any of you prove me guilty of sin? I am telling the truth. Why don't you believe me? Whoever belongs to God, hears what God says. And the reason you do not hear is that you do not belong to God. Now, what is Jesus' tone? Any thoughts? What's Jesus' tone? Savage. Oh, I like that. Savage, yes. Yes. Very savage. Any other words? Now the beat's stuck in my head. Um, um, any, any, what's what's Jesus' tone like? What's his tone like? He's mad, yeah. I feel that. I felt that. Yeah. Anybody else? Anything? Hmm? Frustrated, yeah. Yeah, there's a lot like, like that's, I, part of that is highlighted is when he says like, very truly I tell you, that's like the, the Jesus' colloquial, like modern day colloquial or his present time colloquial of like, I'm very serious about this, like no lie, right? And, um, and he's, we, we see him say this three times in this text. Um, and so, that, which is also a significant number. He's very serious, very direct. Very, he's trying to be very clear about what he's trying to say. Any other like, thoughts about Jesus' tone? Maybe one more thought? Maybe from this side of the room? Any? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. So with that in mind, like, what are some themes? Like, what are, what are they talking about? What are some of the questions that are being brought up in, in the course of this exchange? Anyone? Yeah, yeah. Like, it's a, a question of belonging, right? Yeah. Anybody else? That's, that's a good one. Yeah, truth is a very important theme here for sure. Yeah. And that also is a throwback to John chapter 1, the idea of logos, right? Yeah. Anybody else? These are really great. Freedom. Freedom. Yeah. Like, what does it mean to be set free? And the opposite, like, what does it mean to be in slavery? Like, those are the questions that are being brought up here, yeah. Any other? Maybe one more thought? Rebuking in love, yeah. Like he is like, he, he, I mean, this is Jesus, the son of God. 
And he's like, he sings because he cares, right? It's not because he's just ticked off. But, and a lot of times, you know, like, they're really close, right? Those, the, the, they, they, they hold the intention, yeah. And what we see in this text is like, um, for all the characters that we see in this passage, all the people in this text, Jesus and his audience, um, the, the identity of belonging, I feel like it's important. But also I think there's a, there's a question of or identity that's really important here. Like what does it mean to be a son of God? What does it mean to be a descendant of Abraham? And so they're ultimately talking about, asking questions about what is it, what's my identity, what's my, what's, what does it mean to belong? And so this is the conversation that's taking place. And so us, for us, the reader, the, the question that we should be asking as we see this exchange happen is, so what does it mean for, for me? What does it mean to be a believer and a true disciple of Jesus? What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? What does it mean to know the truth? What does it mean to be set free? What does it mean to belong to sin and, and to belong and to be freed by the Son? What does it mean to belong to God? And all those questions will definitely help us answer this text. But we're going to focus on one specific question because I think this one question will help us kind of, I feel like all the other questions kind of are like cousins of, of this primary question. And the question is this, what does it mean to be a descendant of Abraham? That's, that's the argument that they're having. What does it mean to be a descendant of Abraham? All these questions, kind of all the themes, all the bickering and bantering back and forth is around this idea of being a descendant of Abraham. So what do we see here about being a descendant of Abraham? Well, first of all, um, and this is true in Jesus' time as it is even now, it's kind of a big deal to be, to be ethnically Jewish. Like, like, with it, it carries a meaning and you're part of a long historical legacy of God's favor for you spiritually and a people group and even a nation. So from it, there's a deep sense of, again, identity and belonging. So this is some core human value stuff. This is core stuff for any human being. And we kind of get the impression from the reading of how much they valued the, this idea of being a descendant of Abraham. Jesus' audience really valued. It was so important for them to understand, to know that they are a descendant, to know and declare that they are a descendant of Abraham. And you get this idea from this text, but also, um, you could also kind of get that, like, this is kind of a layered conversation. There's a lot of, like, they're not just talking about it on the surface, but there seems to be a lot of under, like, under the surface stuff happening. Kind of reminds me of, like, uh, um, Chapter 4, when Jesus is talking with the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman. Yeah, they're talking about water and thirst, but like there's, there's also a lot of other stuff that are happening. They're talking about culture stuff. They're talking about prejudices. They're talking about religious dynamics and all that stuff. So this conversation feels similar too, where we get a taste. And where we get a taste of that is right from the get-go in 33, where it says that they are descendants. They're letting Jesus know, hey, we are descendants of Abraham, and we have never been slaves to anyone, which is a little confusing because if you know a little bit about Israel's history, that's a big part of their history. Like, there's, there's Abraham, and then there's Isaac, and there's Joseph, or, um, uh, yeah, and then there's like, and then pretty much from there, they go to Egypt, and they're enslaved for generations. That's the start of their history. There's the start of their history as the nation, and the eth ethnicity, and the culture, and the heritage is as slaves, and yet they're saying, we don't, we, we, we have never been slaves, so there's obviously a layered conversation happening here. 
And see, take that even further. Currently, Israel is under Roman rule. So politically, they are under oppression. So for them to say, we have never been slaves, is kind of like, okay, there's more to this conversation. So, were, but, but were they actual like, descendants of Abraham? And, and yes, absolutely, Genesis outlines this really well, the heritage, nationality, all that gets established after uh, Exodus, uh, Joshua, Deuteronomy. And, and that's the same exact heritage and nationality that Jesus' audience are here. And, and, so, and Jesus agrees with them. He says, yeah, you, you are indeed descendants of Abraham. But the point of tension between Jesus and his audience is, is not a matter of ethnic heritage. It's not a matter of nationality. But it's a matter of spiritual lineage. It's, it's, an, it's a matter of spiritual identity. And how Jesus goes about bringing up this tension is talking about their desire, is by talking about their desire to destroy and kill, which we'll talk about more in next week. And that is a reflection of the people that Jesus is talking with, that they are part of the lineage of sin. Jesus was exposing their spiritual, true spiritual identity, which they thought was ultimately found and defined by their ethnic and national identity. But it turns out to Jesus that their identity and belonging was ultimately defined by their character. And this goes for, this, this goes for us today also, that our spiritual identity, our spiritual belonging, is not contingent on any other thing. It's not contingent on our ethnicity. It's not contingent on the flag that we salute to or, or whatever we pledge our allegiance to. For Jesus, those are not an indicator of our righteousness or whether we belong or don't belong to God. Instead, the evidence that you and I belong to God is revealed by our character, by how we relate to one another and how we re relate to the world around us. And this is reflected in so many other places in the Bible. Like, like I mentioned in John chapter 13, where it says, by this, by the way you love one another, you will show that you are my disciples, that you belong to Jesus. Galatians chapter 5, I, I feel like it's such like a good um, like a, a counter compilation to this text because it starts off by outlining what it means to be free and not be burdened by the yoke of slavery, and that's in verse 1. And then the chapter talks about how the Jewish religious ritual of circumcision is not proof of your identity of belonging to Jesus, but instead your, your proof that you belong to Jesus is Love one another. Love your neighbor as yourself. And then it talks about the opposite of that is destruction. And then it goes on to elaborate that whoever lives faithfully to the spirit of Jesus' teaching, that the fruit of that is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and self-control. By the way, the opposite of self-control is self-destruction. Right? So our, our ethnicity, heritage, nationality, does not reflect our spiritual identity or belonging. But if we are true disciples of Jesus, we must ask ourselves, how is our identity in Jesus shaping our character, and how is it impacting our lives and the lives around us? And now, but having said that, ethnicity, heritage, and even nationality has its place. It, that matters to God. We know this because it gets brought up in Revelation. Like, all, every tongue, tribe, nation, a tongue, like, are represented in Revelation. So by the way, by the way, this is kind of like, I was kind of proud of this personally, that so far in this, in this message, we have covered Genesis, 
<laughs> to Revelation. We hit up one of the epistles, but any, anyways. Um, so any, um, but our our God is not a vanilla God. He's multiculturalism matters to God. Being indigenous matters to God. But what we're seeing in our main text is that for Jesus' immediate audience, ethnicity, heritage, and nationality have become supreme. And I, and I use that word on purpose. They have become idols. These things have become a source of pride. They, they found their identity in these things. And ironically, what kind of like ignites this whole conversation is that in verse 25 in, in, in this chapter, they bluntly ask Jesus the question, who are you? Who are you, Jesus? And so as Jesus begins to be more open and clear about his own identity as someone who is sent from God, as Jesus shared, that cemented even more their identity as a, as a descendant of Abraham, that is less about what God has done for them, but rooted in the pride of their own ethnicity, heritage, and nationality. So it's no surprise when Jesus comes out strong with his identity, it leads them, it makes them feel like their identity is being threatened. So what do they do? They get defensive, and they fight back. This is what they say, verse 48. The Jews answered him, Aren't we right in saying that you are a Samaritan? and demon-possessed? This is their response to Jesus, calling them out. And isn't it interesting that the people here are gaslighting Jesus by calling Jesus a Samaritan and demon-possessed? Like, at, at the very moment that they feel threatened, that their identity is being threatened. And this is probably like the worst insult they could think of. You know, like, oh, identity, or our ethnicity is being threatened. So what's the, like, the worst opposite of our, our identity? Samaritan, okay, that's, that's who you are, Jesus. Okay, our identity, spiritual identity feels like it's being threatened. So what's the worst possible identity of like a godly identity? Oh, demon-possessed. So they hurled that right back at Jesus, but not being fully aware of who Jesus really is. Because Jesus, when we know, when we see him in the entirety of this gospel, we see that he has full power over demons, and that he cares, and then he loves the marginalized, like the Samaritans. And here's a real kicker. Like, they're definitely upset at Jesus, but they're not upset enough to like, want to kill him just yet. They're not just quite there yet. Like, he ruffles some feathers here yet, but like, they're not offended enough yet to push them over the edge to want to kill him. And what does that for his audience is when he comes out so like, bluntly, clean, and clear about who he is. And here's how that gets built up. 52 to the end of the chapter. As at this day exclaimed, now we know that you are demon-possessed. Abraham died, so, so did the prophets. Yet you say that whoever obeys your word will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham? He died, and so did the prophets. So who do you think you are? Jesus replied, if I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. My father, whom you claim as your God, is the one who glorifies me. Though you do not know him, I know him. If I said I did not, I would be a liar like you, and I, do, I, and I do know him and obey his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it, and he was glad. 57. Oh, Jesus, Jesus, you, you must not get how this works. You, like, Abraham, like, he was around for a long time ago. You're not even 50, year, 50 years old yet. All right? And you have seen Abraham? 
And this is the other time where Jesus says, very truly I tell you, very truly I tell you, Jesus answered, before Abram was born, I am. At this they picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. Now, this exchange seems a little weird to us, um, but to Jesus' audience, this is very clear, as it was very shocking. This is Jesus revealing himself, not as a prophet, not as a rabbi, but as God. God in the flesh. This is, this is a throwback to how God first revealed himself to the nation of Israel. When, when Moses asked, what is your name, God? And, and God answered, I am. So generations later, there are some people seeing this Jesus person doing some amazing things. So they come up to him and ask him, who are you? And Jesus kind of builds it up and he says, before Abraham was, I am. And there are a couple significant things happening here. First is that Jesus is establishing supremacy over Abraham, which is already kind of dicey for his audience. And the second thing that Jesus is establishing is divine preexistence. And these are very profound theological developments, which is also considered blasphemous um, for his audience. Blasphemy meaning a fancy word for offending God and disrespecting God, but and, and blasphemy is really inconvenient in, in Jesus' time because the punishment for blasphemy is death by uh, having stones thrown at you eventually you die. Um, so Jesus, um, he's almost setting himself up for this. Right? Here, and here's an ironic thing about what's happening here is that the beginning of chapter 8, the begin, it starts with the story of a woman caught in adultery. And that story ends with Jesus telling people, anyone without sin, cast her first stone. They can't do it, so they all go away. And Jesus tells this woman, um, go and sin no more. You don't have to hide anymore. Fast forward to the end of chapter 8. Jesus tells people that he is God. Before Abraham was, I am. And this is Jesus being clear and direct about who he is. And that ends up with people wanting to throw stones at the one who is without sin. And then Jesus has to go into hiding. So to recap, this is what's happening in this chapter. The passage today is, is, is about a deterioration of relationship between Jesus and the people who believed at one point that he was sent from God. And the deterioration of relationship happens as Jesus reveals more and more about who he is and that, that identity eventually gets built up to him being God. And that, when that happens, the audience doubles down on their ethnicity, heritage, and nationality. And what we found out is these two become opposing forces. They do not jive well together. They don't play well together. So that's what we're seeing in this text. Now having said all that, um, you're going to have to kind of forgive me for this next part because um, this is how personally I'm processing this. And if there are other ways that you're kind of digesting what you should, please, um, let's talk about it. I would love to hear it. But here are two ways um, that personally that um, I'm processing this. And the first one is this. I, I really struggled with this text. Very, being very blunt and honest with you. I, um, 
Because like, at least from the first reading, it seemed like in my personal life, in my personal walk with Jesus, and um, I feel like I'm kind of having an opposite um, time, opposite response to what's happening in this text. Because for me, I, I feel like, um, let, me, let me backtrack. Um, I was born in the States. <laughs> I'm, I'm tracking way back. Uh, I was born in the States. We unimmigrated and we immigrated. And ever since we re-immigrated, <laughs> it's been a constant. And we, we lived in the South. We lived in Utah. And so, like, and, um, and so severe identity issues there. Um, and I always feel like the only way that I could get by is to assimilate, to assimilate. And just to force myself to fit into this cultural mold and cultural shape as much as I could. And I carried a lot of that sentiment into who I was as a pastor, as a leader. Um, my, my goal is to assimilate and try to fit um, as much as I can. But one of the things I feel like the Holy Spirit has been doing in me was freeing me up and kind of letting me know that um, as a pastor, um, that I was becoming less of a pastor by trying to hide my Asianness and try to hide my ethnicity. I was trying to be as non-ethically specific as possible, which is hard, which is impossible. I can't do that, you know? Um, but I, I tried my darndest. Um, the, the, the moments that I felt so, like, most embarrassing as, like, in my first kind of years of ministry was I would I'll get so excited to talk about, like, something in a message, and I would say, Jesus. Uh, because, you know, like my Korean accent would kind of come out and stuff like that. Um, um, but, but I think in the last year or so, um, I feel like God's been freeing me up to be like, it's, it's okay. And I feel like as I, as I kind of um, allowed myself to be a little more Korean for myself, and just to be honest with myself, because I realized I was, I was diminishing um, my ability to be a pastor because I was keeping that side, I don't know, hidden. Like, um, but in, in recent years, I, I feel like the Holy Spirit's been giving me like a freedom to be like, you just, you allow your ethnicity and heritage um, to see a greater view of who God is and how he created you. And it's, it's been a, just a freeing journey because um, cause me, being, me being free in who I, God created me to be allowed me to see more of who God is. And so, like, and that's in part, like, one of our values as a church is this is one of the reasons why we, we say that we are trying to be an indigenous church because we feel like your ethnicity, your culture, your heritage brings value to the kingdom of God. We don't want you to push it down and hide it and shove it aside. Bring your culture in, and please bring your food in. <laughs> because it helps us see more of who God is. It gives us a complete picture of who God is, and just his vastness. Like, his vastness, your culture is a part of God's imago Dei, and we need to celebrate that and bring that to the surface, right? So bring your food, bring your culture, bring your language to the table, because it makes us more whole as the people, as the kingdom of God. I'll bring the Korean barbecue and BTS, and you bring whatever you want to, because it makes us more whole as the people of God. 
So, and so that's how I've been like kind of wrestling with this text a little bit. But, here, but I think this, this is where the warning of this text comes in. Is that, but we cannot let that be an idol. We cannot let that be everything. And that's the warning of this text. The second thing is this, and I'll, I'll share this and I'll, um, I'll bring us down. Is that here we see that Jesus clearly says that he is God. And that is a profound theological statement. Very profound. There's no way that we can sugarcoat it. And in fact, I would say this, like for, the, for our, a logical human mind, like this is truly beyond our human, lo- like we, this is like, this should be a point of tension for, for someone who is like logical, right? Like how can an ethereal God be all human, all man, and, 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 and dwell among people, live among a certain specific time and claim that he is God? And, and so, and here, here's what I want to say. If you are at odds with this idea that Jesus is God, bring that to the table. Bring that to the table. I'm not here to cast a first stone. There there have been seasons in my life where I wrestled with the identity of Jesus. And if there's no space for you to process that, by God's grace, I, I pray that we could be that space. That we could wrestle with those things. Because I, I feel like the inability to do that in itself is a form of oppression. And if we really want to truly experience the freedom that we have, could potentially have in Jesus, let us not fear those kind of spaces. Let's bring that to the table. One of our, another value of ours is the ministry of accompaniment and presence. We want to be present with you in those spaces. Bring your questions, bring your doubts. And we want to be present with you because I believe that our, truly one of our greatest witnesses is our, ability, is our ability to be with you. So bring that to the table. All right, let's pray. Ah, Jesus, there's a lot here, um, and we bring that all before you. There's a lot to um, process, a lot to... Um, I'm still processing a lot of this, and I pray that by your grace, um, and I pray that your spirit will give us room um, to sit with it, to wrestle with it, um, to dialogue with you with it, and give us grace and... The, the audacity and bravery um, to share it with people, that we don't have to be alone in, in processing this stuff together. And I feel like to be able to process that, um, that in itself is holy. Um, we receive that. Um, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for loving us enough um, to be in this space together, to hear these words together. And um, we thank you, Jesus. Thank you. Thank you.